Well, good evening. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Tonight we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Begin reading in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we consider this text, let us first begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for this Lord's Day. Thank you again for this the second opportunity to gather and fellowship, to draw near to you and worship. Lord, we thank you for the baptism today. We pray that that would encourage us, especially as we consider this text and what it means to be washed with pure water. Lord, we ask for enlightenment by your Spirit. We ask that Christ would be proclaimed this evening, and that your church would be encouraged, and that those who are not in Christ would be convicted and draw near to you. And faith. And Lord, may this text build us up, give us full assurance of faith in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the greatest controversies in church history, at least since the Reformation period, has centered around whether or not faith necessarily includes assurance of faith, assurance of salvation. Put it in question form, can Christians who lack assurance of faith can they, stand, who, stand, who lack the assurance that they stand righteous before God, can they say that they have true saving faith if they lack that assurance? Our confession, in fact, seems to come down quite strongly on this issue. In chapter 18 of the assurance of grace and salvation, paragraph 3 reads as follows. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. Now, the writers will go on to explain in further detail what this means exactly. Uh, It would seem at first glance, though, that our forefathers in the faith deny the notion that the Christian life is accompanied with assurance. So it might surprise you to know that most of them actually, in fact, believed that assurance is inseparable from faith. Now, if you want to know more about this, I'd encourage you to attend our Sunday school series as we go through the confession. Uh, We will get to this chapter uh, later this year. But tonight, our focus focus is on the Word of God and what it has to say about faith and assurance. So I bring up this debate because our passage in Hebrews is essential to understanding the relationship between assurance of faith and faith itself. Here in Hebrews 10, the author says, he makes clear that your confidence before God cannot be severed from faith itself. 
Does confidence, does assurance of faith, does it ebb and flow throughout the Christian life? Well, absolutely. And that paragraph in our confession, by the way, goes on to explain that. But central here in our text is that Christ is inseparable from the benefits that he offers in salvation, namely assurance of faith. In other words, the benefits of faith cannot be separated from the benefactor of our faith, and that's Christ. Jesus is both. Jesus Christ, as the object of our faith, he cannot be separated from the benefits that he offers to you. And those benefits, they're not limited to salvation alone. They're even extended to your assurance that you can be saved and know that with full assurance. So as we consider the text tonight, I hope to show you this. Our passage affirms that you can, in fact, have assurance of faith if you have faith in Christ. Now, this this text does this uh, in two ways. It does it first by displaying the foundation of your assurance. And second, by the ways you can facilitate assurance. This text gives us the foundation and the facilitations of assurance of faith. We see the foundation for assurance of faith in the first three verses, verses 19 through 21. You'll notice this text begins with the word, therefore. As Pastor Nathan likes to say, what's the therefore? Therefore, we have to consider this before we move on. And unfortunately, we don't have months um, behind us of going through the book of Hebrews, so it would take a long time to really understand what uh, this therefore is is referring to. But thankfully here, the writer summarizes the context of this, therefore. He goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. This here is the foundation of your assurance, in a nutshell. This is the grounds of the entire Christian life. Your life as a believer, standing righteous before God, standing righteous and confident in that righteousness before God, it begins as being one who is washed by the blood of Jesus. We have no hope of righteousness without him, and thus we have no hope of assurance of confidence without him. Well, according to these verses, There are two aspects to how Jesus is presented as the foundation of assurance. Look with me again at verse 19. The writer says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. In other words, our our faith, our confidence and assurance, this gives us direct access to the presence of God and his throne of grace. But don't miss this point. We have access only, what does it say? By the blood of Jesus. By Christ's blood, he has opened, verse 20, a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. For Israelites under the Old Covenant, God's special presence in the Holy of Holies was separated from the people by the curtain, the veil in the tabernacle. This curtain symbolized and made manifest the total separation that humanity has from God's presence because of the fall, because of sin. God is holy as well. 
Therefore, the only one who was allowed to enter the holiest place was the priest who offered a sacrifice of atonement, a continual sacrifice of atonement. But as the book of Hebrews clarifies, the blood of bulls and goats is ultimately worthless. Those sacrifices, in fact, pointed to a greater reality. Just as the curtain symbolized man's exclusion and separation from God, the constant sacrifices made manifest the need for a more perfect atonement. But a perfect atonement calls for a perfect man, indeed. In other words, to find assurance and confidence before God, God himself must be the sacrifice. And that, brethren, is exactly who we have in Jesus Christ. Christ, his flesh, his human nature, it is the curtain between man and God. The incarnation, God taking on human flesh, it is your only way to God. The great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, puts it beautifully, I think. Reads, the veiled and flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. In other words, God in human flesh is the only bridge, the only way between us and God. Therefore, the Son of God is the only sufficient sacrifice. By this tearing of the curtain, by the crucifixion of Christ's body, his flesh, the way of divine eternal life has been opened. The only hope that we have of a restored relationship with, with God and standing before him is by the sacrifice of the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant, Jews were prevented by their law-breaking from standing in God's presence. But in Christ, in spite of our own law-breaking, by the grace of the New Covenant, we are welcomed and even ushered into Christ, Christ's holy place, God's holy place, the special dwelling place of God in his church with freedom, confidence, and assurance. Now, before we move on, I, I want to make something clear about God's love and the sacrifice of his son, the reason for it. I think it can be tempting for Christians, and it can even be destructive towards your assurance of faith. Uh, to think that God, the Father, only loves you because he sent his son to die on your, on your behalf. But to think that way is actually to get it utterly backwards. That way of thinking gets it backwards and if you're believing in Jesus, know this. God did not, does not love you only on the basis that he sent his son. Rather, he sent his son because he loves you. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, none of this implies that God loves everybody equally or that all people will be saved. No, it is to remind you that God loves his elect people more than they could ever imagine. God's love is the basis for sending his son. So if you're trusting in Christ, never doubt God's love for you. His son's perfect sacrifice is a testament to that reality. And this lies the essence of your assurance of faith. Well, that's the first way this passage lays forth the foundation of assurance that Christ is your sacrifice. It is by his blood alone that you can find confidence before God. 
Well, the second aspect to Christ as the foundation of assurance is that he is also He is both our sacrifice and our priest. We see this point in verse 21. It reads that we have a great high priest over the house of God. Here in this verse, the writer is summarizing what he wrote back in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 14 through 16. There it reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in recalling these verses, the writer to the Hebrews is making a central claim that Christ is a priest of those who believe in him by faith. These verses affirm what our catechism says as well, that Christ is our priest by offering himself as our sacrifice, by satisfying God's justice, and in making continual intercession for us, even now. His work as our priest is absolutely foundational to the Christian life. This is, in a nutshell, the core message of the entire book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is priest, and his priesthood cannot be emphasized or magnified enough in the Christian life. Your life as a Christian utterly depends on who Christ is and what he has done. Jesus is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He is both the priest and the priestly offering. Believing this by faith is the key to full Well, the next few verses will provide the ways in which assurance is facilitated, but without faith, and the only one who can save, by his sacrifice and his priesthood, no assurance will be found. To know Christ to have him hold. Do you who believe lack assurance? Do you have doubts, fears, worries? Do you have doubts or anxieties about your standing before God? Well, then hear this from, from Sinclair Ferguson. Assurance is not the absence of doubts or fears, but the presence of trust in Christ in the midst of them. You know who Jesus is, you believe that he can save and trust in him for your salvation, despite the doubts that you face, therein lies your assurance, in spite of whatever those doubts are. If you feel distant from God, draw near to him. Draw near to him. And this brings us to the second point of our passage. So first, Christ has been laid forth as the foundation of assurance by being both a priest and a sacrifice. Well, second, the writer provides with us in verses 22 through 25, the facilitations of assurance. So if you are in times of doubt, how can you facilitate assurance of faith? As you await the last day, for instance, as the text asks us. Well, in verse 22, the author exhorts us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This talk of drawing near, it is worship language. It recalls to mind the, the worship commands of the Old Testament. To draw near is to approach the presence of God in worship. The holy places, as mentioned in verse 19, even. We'll look back with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Well, unlike the priesthood under the Old Covenant, the priesthood of Christ in the New Covenant, it has made you perfect in order that you may draw near to God and worship. If you have been washed by Christ's blood, it is in order that you may worship him. But if Christ is not your priest, your hopes of drawing near to God are in vain. Sure, you can do your best to make own, your own continual sacrifices, you might say, to God by your own good works. But without Christ as your priest and sacrifice, your sins remain unatoned for. You can try to be your own priest, intercede on your own behalf. But Hebrews repudiates these very things earlier in this chapter, going on in verse 4. He reads, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to take away sins. And consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Well, he then goes on down in verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you're believing in this by faith, how then do you take up such an offering? How do you draw near in full assurance, as the text says? Here, the author gives us some of the ways that you can facilitate such assurance in the Christian life. These ways that he gives are actually some of the elements of our worship, in fact. The first element of facilitating or encouraging assurance is baptism. Now, before I say more, let me encourage you, if you were not here this morning, go back and listen to the sermon that was preached. Um, I cannot commend enough the, the message that Baptism is a, it is a means of assurance of faith in the Christian life. And this was preached this morning. Again, uh, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. If you heard it, listen to it again. Now, it's quite providential as well that uh, this is being preached off of the heels of that because the baptism service was supposed to be last Sunday. So uh, there's something providential in that as well. But here in Hebrews 10, uh, obviously the word baptism is it's not in the text explicitly. But it would be a fallacy to deny that baptism has no place in this text. The second half of verse 22 says that we draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now before seeing how this relates to baptism, let's consider the Old Covenant again. Under the Levitical priesthood, cleansing was ritual and ceremonial only. It was an outward sprinkling of the body, but it did not cleanse one's soul. But as believers, as we heard this morning, your confidence and assurance to draw near comes from the very fact that Christ has cleansed your soul. And this fulfills such prophecies as Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. The Lord said, I will sprinkle clean clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
but wonderful words of promise that are fulfilled in Christ and even in baptism. The new covenant, on the other hand, is made up of those who have been washed anew by the blood of Christ. We have both an inward and an outward cleansing. Here, there's good reason to understand here in Hebrews 10, this language of inward cleansing, the hearts being sprinkled clean and outward cleansing, bodies washed with pure water, as a reference to baptism. By our hearts sprinkled clean, the writer has the inward reality of baptism in view. And by our bodies washed with pure water, the outward sign of baptism, the outward mode of immersion in water is also in view. But it's a sign of one's inward spiritual cleansing. And indeed, this accords with our own beliefs about baptism, as again we heard. Your water baptism, being born of water, it signifies your regeneration. And returning to our text here in Hebrews, then, it's clear that baptism by water and by the Spirit is how we approach God. That's to say, our hearts must be made pure by the blood of Jesus. And the ordinary way that this is expressed is through the outward mode of water baptism, being washed with pure water. This is not merely a requirement of worship, though. It's not just a law for us to approach God. No, baptism is a means of assurance of faith. As we heard this morning, if you're struggling with with your faith, today is for you, as Pastor Nathan said. Baptism is itself a symbol that God by the blood of his Son, has washed you clean. In your baptism, you have died and been raised with Christ. You, on the account of many witnesses, have been brought into his church. Therefore, baptism is a key manner in which assurance of faith is facilitated in the Christian life. This is why you must remember your baptism. As Martin Luther said, For this reason, we must hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism, hold it against all sins and terrors of conscience, and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized. And through my baptism, God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in a covenant with me, not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and blot it out. So if you're doubting your assurance, let today's baptism be a reminder to you of your own baptism as well. In your baptism, being recognized by God through his church, your faith has been affirmed by him. Your baptism is a reminder that you are in in union with Christ, and it strengthens that union. When you draw near to God, draw near with assurance as one who has been washed clean and whose heart has been made pure. With full assurance, proclaim in your heart that I am baptized, and I have been made pure before God. Well, baptism is the first way that assurance is facilitated in the Christian life, according to this text. The second way, verse 23, is to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who... It's worth noting here that just as with baptism, with the inward-outward connection, there's another inward-outward connection and the confession of our hope. Christians have an inward hope, referring to the truth of the gospel, the reality that Christ is our priest and our sacrifice. But the writer doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't simply say, hold fast our hope. No, he says, hold fast to the confession of our hope, or even in the Greek, it could be confession or profession. 
This confession of hope implies that there is a public, outward expression of that gospel hope. And for one, this is why we in the Reformed tradition express our beliefs through actual confessions of faith. That's because there's a fully orbed substance to our faith. Our faith isn't a blind leap, but gospel hope, but is a gospel hope so deep that it can be expressed even through uh, systematic theologies, through creeds, through confessions that we hold to. But remember, our commonly shared hope and faith in Christ must be openly, publicly confessed. Believing a confession of faith is not what is, is exactly in view here. It is an outward public confession of that faith. Just as our inward washing of the heart is publicly proclaimed in the outward washing of our baptism. And this is why in our liturgy, for instance, we confess our hope each Lord's Day. In verbally confessing the hope which lies in your heart, you, along with all the saints around you, are reminding each other of your place among the sons and daughters of God, all those who are in union with Christ. It makes you one with Christ's body, past, present, and future. And again, what a great source of assurance this can be. The public confession of our hope leaves nobody in doubt, including ourselves, of who Christ is and what he has done for us as our priest and our sacrifice. It assures us, as verse 23 reads, that Christ who promised is faithful. It is not our own faithfulness which gives assurance. It's Christ's faithfulness. Well, finally, this brings us to the third manner of facilitating assurance in the Christian life. The writer of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. We'll hear the writer's final exhortation in a word. It's fellowship. It's to fellowship with the saints. Believers in the fellowship of the church are to, it says, stir up one another for the purposes of love and good works. Loving good works, these are the fruits of saving faith. They are the outward evidences of a sincere inward confession of hope. Verse 23. Those who are in Christ will be conformed to his likeness. And thus, we can encourage assurance in the Christian life through fellowship. 1 John 4 says that whoever loves has been born of God. And while it's dangerous to judge your standing with God, among such lines, loving good works can be a confirmation of assurance. Not a source, not the foundation, but a confirmation of assurance in the Christian life. So long, again, as they are not the foundation. The foundation is and must only be Christ. To turn away from him as the fount of grace, as the source of assurance, is to miss the gospel hope. Love and good works may confirm and facilitate assurance, but again, they must never be the foundation. In other words, don't confuse your justification before God with your sanctification. Now, we could spend a long time going through what that looks like, and even, as the text says, what it looks like to stir up one another to love and good works. But as with the previous ways the text gives us to facilitate assurance in baptism and confessing our hope, this text is really relating this to worship. The writer gives us a negative command. He says not to neglect meeting together. 
Now, right off the bat, at least in my mind, that brings to mind the past few years with COVID. Of course, churches leaving their doors shut during the pandemic. And that is true to an extent. The passage applies to that. But don't miss the bigger point here and how it applies to all of us. In the New Testament, what did the church meeting together actually look like? It looks like partaking of the Lord's Supper. We don't have time to look at texts such as Acts 2, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 11, or other important texts relating to the Lord's Supper. But our belief as a church here at CRBC, and many other churches in our tradition, is that weekly communion, weekly partaking of the Lord's Supper is necessary for the Christian life. Because as far as we can see in Scripture, in the New Testament, the first churches partook as often as they met. And our text tonight is one which corroborates such a belief and not neglecting to meet together. New Testament fellowship, New Testament meeting together looks like fellowship around the Lord's table. Now, sure, Christian fellowship, meeting with one another on any day of the week or even on the Lord's day, just worshiping without the Lord's Supper. Those things do facilitate assurance without a doubt. But more than that, fellowship around the table, that is what binds us with Christ by his real spiritual presence in the meal. So in a sense, this passage is it's driving us to the means of grace, the sacraments. Strengthen to confirm our assurance of faith. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and even confessing the gospel publicly in our worship, these are the primary ways we facilitate assurance in the Christian life. So, Brethren, if you're doubting your faith, let the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ, be your soul's nourishment as we go into the world. One Puritan helpfully wrote, In the Lord's Supper, we get, a Christ, we get Christ better than we did before. We get the thing which we had more fully, that is, with a surer apprehension, we could say assurance, than we did before. We get a better grip of Christ now, for by the sacrament, my faith is nourished, the bounds of my soul are enlarged, and so where I had but a little grip of Christ before, as it were, between my finger and my thumb, now I get him in my whole hand. And indeed, the more my faith grows, the better grip I get of Christ. Thus, the sacrament is very necessary, if only for the reason that we get Christ better and get a firmer grasp of him by the sacrament than we could have had before. Christian fellowship, then, is a, a necessary means of encouraging faith, facilitating assurance. Most especially because fellowship in the Lord's Supper is where our union with Christ is made more perfect. So as we look forward to the next Lord's Day, look forward to the Lord's Supper. See it and take it as Christ's life and nourishment offered freely to you. For from him alone do you have genuine assurance of your salvation, for he himself is your salvation. Brethren, this brings us to the final words of our text tonight. The church is to draw near in full assurance by our baptism, our public confession, and in fellowship. But what does it say at the end? All the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a call to persevere by faith. But God has not left us to our own efforts to persevere. He has not given us faith and left us in the Christian life. It's to such an end. 
not blindly, but faith that comes with assurance. So let today's baptism be a reminder of your own. Let our shared confession of hope give you strength in the knowledge of Christ. As the week goes on, look forward to the next Lord's Day when we will partake of the Lord's Supper again. Let these ordinary means of grace and worship be the center of your life in Christ. Let them be the things which your life revolves around. For that is where we can find true assurance. So as we await the last day, you will face tribulations. You will be tempted to sin. You may even backslide. Your assurance of faith may ebb and flow. You may lack it even now. But Christ's promises will not change. Because you have a great high priest who promises to draw near to those who draw near to him. And he who promised is faithful. Amen? Let's go to him in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for purifying our hearts, for giving us the grace to draw near to you and worship, with our bodies washed with pure water, and confessing our hope that you sent your Son and he is faithful to his promises. And Lord, even in our fellowship, most especially around the table of the Lord, pray that these things would give us assurance as we face doubts. We face fears of whether or not we are in Christ. Lord, let us not take Christ apart, but take him as a whole. Not to separate what he offers from who he is. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, equip us for the week ahead. Let us look forward to the next day when we will draw near to you in the proclamation of your word, the breaking of bread, the confession of our hope. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be with us as we do all these things. In Christ's name, amen.